I would like to say that we have uh, been developing a portrait of biblical joy that if you found to be surprising, I hope pleasantly so, it's unique. It differs from the world's counterfeit in that it is not purely an emotion, but a disposition. It's not temporary, but enduring. It's not elusive, but quite under our control. And we enhance our knowledge of godly joy all the more today with two final statements, which are really profound. And I could say much, much more than I will have said in these past two weeks. This is an exhaustible topic. Hopefully, we've said enough to to set you on the right path, uh, to rejoice and rejoice properly, and to further your your study in this uh, very important topic of joy. So let's begin then uh, with number four. We've looked at three uh, truth statements about biblical joy, uh, which are published there in your bulletin. Here's the fourth one. In the fourth place, I want to say that biblical joy thrives in suffering. Biblical joy thrives in suffering. If there's one characteristic of this fruit of the Spirit that reveals it to be of a very different nature than any kind of joy that the unsaved heart can actually generate, it is this one. Biblical joy thrives in suffering. It's a fact that utterly confounds the world. They don't understand this. It's unbelievable enough to think that one's joy is present in the midst of suffering, but thriving in it? No way. How can that possibly be? The world at best can only cope with insufferable seasons of life. Grin and bear it, as the saying goes. Yes, well, coping is a cheap substitute of divine joy. I don't know if you knew that. And it's a sad fact that I think uninformed Christians talk like this. I'm coping. But for more than conquerors, this is no way to talk, beloved. Where's the joy in coping? God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity. God is for us, remember? There's much for us to rejoice all uh, over all situations in life, especially trials. Especially trials? Yes. Yes, the writer of the epistles are quite clear that the godly way for Christians to receive trials is with nothing less than joy. And their talk is not cheap. They themselves practice what they preached. I'll prove this to you. In, Luke, uh, in Luke's writings, uh, specifically Acts chapter 5, he records that Peter and John rejoiced after receiving a beating from the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? Listen to verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now Luke records a similar instance in Acts 6, where Paul and Silas, who were likewise beaten and imprisoned in Philippi for the same thing, starts in verse 22. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were all listening to them. You know, singing is a universal expression of joy in humanity. 
and singing hymns to God is a universal expression among Christians for rejoicing in God. Here you have New Testament leaders and writers rejoicing through suffering. And their testimony backs their doctrine that they go on to write. For example, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, the apostle tells his congregation, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share with Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You are insulted for the name of Christ. You are blessed because the spirit of, of glory and, the God, and, and of God rests upon you. The word from Peter helps us to understand that Peter and John, Paul and Silas, rejoiced not because they were in pain, as if they derived some morbid pleasure out of that. No, no, they rejoiced because they were persecuted for obeying God. They were persecuted for righteousness' sake. Paul himself would later write in 2 Corinthians 12, a passage we just heard read in our scripture reading, he would write this passage admitting that his own insufferable situation was actually tailor-made for him by a good sovereign for his good. He says, to keep me from being too proud by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being proud. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. That's an important bit of information that Paul needed to know. What was Paul's response to this trial now that he learned this? He said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. Jesus himself taught Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you under all kinds of evil against you. For false, uh, uh, you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And James says, as you know, count it all joy, when you meet trials of various kinds, my brothers, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, the writer makes an effort to encourage his wavering congregation by reminding them of their former confidence. He says, you know there was a time when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property? since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can there be any doubt from Scripture that God calls his people to rejoice, especially in trial, and not in spite of them, but because of them? There's no question, no question at all. So here we get a good idea of the nature of biblical joy. It thrives in the very context that detracts from worldly joy. But let me hasten on to, to, the, to the last one. In the fifth place, 
Biblical joy is the responsibility of all believers. I might say that this way, or in another words, that we are responsible to rejoice. We're responsible to rejoice. Let me say very simply that God commands all Christians to rejoice. That means that we can and we must. It's our responsibility to cultivate and express this deep-seated joy that is part of our new nature, this enduring, controllable disposition of joy that thrives even in trials. Our responsibility. That also means that we have no other, or we have no one or, or nothing to blame, rather, when we lack joy. Nothing whatsoever. So how do we maintain joy, then? How do we heed our responsibility in this very important endeavor? Well, the short answer is by staying in the will of God. That's right. Know God's will for you at any given time and do it. That is the essence of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 19. He says, find out what the will of God is and do it. Now, it's a simple formula. Cultivate this joy Seek to please the Lord by obeying his word. You want to cultivate joy, know the will of God, and be about it. I want to prove this to you with two more texts, starting with Psalm 37, verse 4. Very familiar text. You know it. As soon as I begin, you'll, uh, you'll remember it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, yes, we know that well. The psalmist explains that delighting in the Lord, rejoicing in God, reveling in Him, is the surest way to have your desires met. The Hebrew word translated delight means to take great satisfaction in something. It's a synonym for joy elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. So how do we satisfy ourselves in God? How do we take pleasure in Him, rejoice in Him, we can't even see or touch him. Well, the answer is not apart from his word. Doing what he says is the sure sign that you are satisfied in him. We rejoice in God when we see that, his, that, that he is good and we walk in his truth. We trust and believe that his will is the best possible option for us in any situation. This is how we show that we are satisfied in God. The world says, I'm happiest when I'm free to do as I please. But the Christian says, I'm happiest because I'm free to please God and I can know when I do. But let's be convinced from the context of Psalm 37. Psalms are written, you may know, in Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is based on various kinds of parallelism. Three most important ones would be where one line says the opposite of the line before it, or it say, says the same thing as the line before it, just in different words, or it goes on to simply elaborate the line just before it. Those are the three basic kinds. There are, of course, more specific kinds as well. Verse 4 is parallel to verse 3 and verse 5. They say essentially the same thing as verse 4. So, delight in the Lord, in verse 4, is the same as trust in the Lord, do good, and cultivate faithfulness, in verse 3. 
and commit your way to the Lord and trust in him in verse 5. In fact, verse 5 even has the same condition as verse 4. Trust in him and he will act. Right? Delight in him and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's the same kind of condition. The idea is that in order to find God acting in your life, in this case giving you the desires of your heart, you need to commit your way to him. Do good. Cultivate faithfulness. Commit your way to him. That is exactly what it means to delight in God. To be in the will of God is the essence of delighting in him. Making God's thoughts your thoughts and then putting them into action. Living them out is is delighting in God. This is why we made the point that joy is more than emotion. It certainly includes emotion, but it is a disposition mainly. It is a posture that's set on trusting God. Very confident posture. Now there's more here. The promise of verse 4 has often been misunderstood by uninformed Christians as a license to get whatever I want. That, of course, misses the point of the whole context. This verse promises really two things, okay? And here's the crux. Two things. One, that God will give you the right desires to desire. And number two, he will then fulfill them. Those are the two things it promises. Let's see how this works. First, God promises to give you the right desires to desire. Now, how does he do that? The only proper desire to have, desires to have, are, of course, godly ones, those which God himself desires. He, He desires the salvation of the lost, that husbands love their wives, that wives submit to their husbands, that children obey their parents, and that parents train their children in godly ways that Christ be exalted, that his name be known in the earth, and so on. Many are the desires of God that we find all over the Bible and there for us to own, beloved. By that I mean we too desire the very same things. How do we have the same desires as God? By knowing his word better, his mind better finding out what's in his will, that is, his word, and then being doers of that word. Now, once you know God's mind revealed in Scripture, you can make his thoughts your thoughts, and the more that happens, the more you begin to desire what he desires, crave what he craves, hate what God hates. You want to see his will promoted. You want to see his cause championed. By trusting his word, you come to adopt his desires. They now fill your heart, and you start to earnestly pray for them. And it's at this point that God is pleased to give you the desire of your heart, because what you desire is what he desires. We find the same process happening in the conditional language of Isaiah 58. That's the second passage I want to rehearse with you. In verses 13 and 14, we see that the issue here is about keeping God's Sabbath, the fourth commandment. You see, one reason God sent Israel into captivity for 70 years is because they violated his Sabbath for 70 years. 
So listen to the conditional language beginning in verse 13. God says, if because of the Sabbath you restrain your foot from doing as you wish on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a pleasure, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and, sp and speaking your own word, and let's stop right there. That's the first part of the condition. God's people needed to think rightly about his Sabbath and seek to please him in it, not themselves, but him by keeping his Sabbath day holy. They must use it for, for his pleasures, not their own. Now comes the fulfillment of the condition in verse, verse 14. When they are obedient, God says, then you will take delight in the Lord. The bottom line here is that only when Israel obeys the Lord with a view to pleasing and honoring him may it be said of them that they delight in the Lord. Now, I promised you last time that I would address in greater detail two important questions, one being the legitimate place of mourning in the Christian life. How do we understand Paul's call to rejoice always in light of Jesus' declaration Blessed are those who mourn. Hmm, there seems to be a contradiction here. Well, it's a fair question, and we should answer it. I'll begin by saying that there is no contradiction when you understand that even Christian grieving or mourning is different than the way the world grieves. We saw that with love. We're seeing that with joy. We'll see it with the rest of the fruit, and we see it with grieving, which is why God is pleased with us when we mourn over situations that are truly mournful. We should. But different? How so? Well, Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's what Paul says. Different kind of grieving. It is grieving with hope unlike the world. Christians grieve, yes, but our grief should never lead to despair or depression or quitting because while we grieve over tr uh, things that are truly worth grieving for, we still have our hope, our certainty in Christ that, that he saved us and loves us and will come for us. Christians, therefore, still have their joy deep and abiding within them even as they mourn. It is their anchor that holds them fast from grieving as hopeless individuals. Jesus is our greatest example of this. When facing God's will for him and going to the cross, something that he was not looking forward to, he endured it because, it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, the joy set before him. The writer of Hebrews is not referring to Jesus becoming sin and being separate from the Father, the cause of his bloody sweat, as being his joy. That would not make sense. Rather, the joy was that in dying and in doing this, he would please the Father and save a people for himself. That joy, beloved, never left him, ever. And it won't leave you as well. The other question is, what about those times in the Christian life when I feel joyless? What, what is that, and how do I get it back? 
And that is also an important, fair question. It's an honest one. There can be a number of reasons for joyless seasons in the faith, and sometimes there's accounting for it, and sometimes there isn't. We have no, no reason or no idea why. But it's real. We don't feel much like keeping up with our God-given responsibilities. Regardless of the reason, the sure and godly response, though, is still to forge ahead and obey God with the conviction that in doing so, you will eventually rekindle the joy. We rehearsed that principle last time. I'm reminded of the servant song in Isaiah, and particularly chapter 50, verse 10. Isaiah 50, verse 10 It is directed to the one that follows Messiah, that is, his disciple, that's you and me. And this is what the verse says to us. Who is among you who fears the Lord? That would be you. Who obeys the voice of the servant? That would be you. Who walks in darkness and has no light? Well, that would be you as well. There are times in the Christian life that is the assumption here where a believer will walk in darkness without light. Now this is not a reference to walking in sin as darkness often is in the Bible. Rather, it is a reference to living without much assurance of the presence of God in my life. It seems strangely distant to us. What are we to do? Well, the answer is in the last sentence of verse 10. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's why. Interpreted, that means forge ahead through the darkness, regardless of how you feel, and obey the Lord's will, be faithful, cultivate good, commit your way, trust his word, as Psalm 37 says, and eventually the joy will be rekindled. I want to point out that while these reasons are real and they do happen, most of our struggle does come as a result of not handling situations in a biblical way. So in some instances, we do know why we don't have joy. We're not being biblical, we're out of the will of God. And sin has a way of dousing our joy. I want to give you just one very common example of this, and it is, in, it is with worry. You know, worry has become the acceptable sin in the lives of American Christians. Everyone worries, and no one really takes it seriously. But it is far from acceptable to God, and if you allow this sin to continue in your life, it will consume you. So let me address worry for a moment. When someone worries, his life is thrown into chaos. There is upheaval in his life. He's far from happy. He knows no joy, no peace. He loses sleep, trying to, uh, attiring himself out by expending all of his energy and the grace that God has given him on tomorrow's problems, trying to fix something that hasn't happened yet, and consequently, He neglects his God-given responsibilities for today. How silly is that? But this is why worry is so sinful. Now, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9, which is the classic text that deals with worry, 
and overcoming the sin of worry. Um, here we see that Paul, after establishing in verse 4 that worry is indeed a sin, and that instead we should be rejoicing, Paul helps us to do just that with three steps. Three steps. Step one is in verse 6. And it's to handle the future correctly, not by trying to fix it, but by ordering it according to God's will. He says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I want you to notice the all-inclusive terminology, beloved. We're to come to God in everything, including future concerns, and we're to pray. We're to pray. Paul uses three different words for prayer in this one verse. The first word for prayer is a generic word, just setting the context. Go to God in prayer. The second word is more specific. It's supplication. That means to ask God for something. The third word is petition, which means to give God solid biblical reasons why he should answer your petition or your supplication in the way you've asked it. Hmm. Now, most Christians understand the first two words for prayer, but very few understand biblical petition. It is one of the most misunderstood aspects of supplication, but absolutely necessary in this context. And we have precedent for it as well. I'll give you one example in Exodus 32. You remember Moses intercedes on behalf of disobedient Israel, and he petitions God not to destroy them. In verses 11 to 13, Moses gives as many as four reasons, sound reasons, why God should forgive his people. And they all have to do mainly with preserving God's reputation, by the way. I'll rehearse just one of them with you. In verse 12, Exodus 32, Moses says, O Lord, why should the Egyptians talk, saying with evil motives he brought them out? to kill them on the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Moses essentially says to God that it would not be good for God's reputation, for God to annihilate the nation. He was concerned about God's reputation. That was a good, sound, biblical reason. Paul references the, the very same practice in Philippians 4, 6. Let me point... Let me point, uh, point, point, it to you, uh, point it out to you this, this way. Your reasons why God should answer your prayer about the future event should have to do primarily with God's reputation and secondarily your good or benefit. If believers' petition is remotely close to this biblical practice of giving reasons, they always put their own benefit first, in fact, even leave out God's reputation completely. But we need to be concerned for God's glory more than for our own good and reflect that in our petition. Now, before we leave step one, notice the manner of our petitioning. It's with thanksgiving. And I really love this part because it shows us that rejoicing in the midst of turmoil is the norm for Christians. There are at least three good reasons why Christians can rejoice and should in the thick of unpleasant situations that would otherwise cause non-Christians to worry sick over. 
Number one, God has tailor-made this trial for me and brought it into my life for my good. That's one reason. That's praiseworthy enough, but here's the second reason. I'm confident that God will answer my prayer because the reasons I gave him are based on Scripture. I can start rejoicing even now before the trial's over in anticipation of answered prayer. Now you say, well, wait a second. What if God doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you've prayed it? What if, what if I got his will wrong and my reasons were not sound? There is that chance, right? Is my joy premature? Am I getting my hopes up potentially to be dashed? Well, those questions really misunderstand the doctrine of prayer as well as some other key doctrines. But let me answer it this way. God always answers prayer, beloved, always. He says yes or yes, but not right now. Or no, I've got something better. Which leads to the third reason for rejoicing in trial. If God doesn't answer our prayer in the way that we have asked it, he has something better in mind, and that's worth rejoicing over, too. Now, the long and short of it is, regardless if I'm in a trying situation or not, I can resist the temptation to worry and go on to handle the future rightly while at the same time rejoicing in it because God brought it for my good. He will bring it to an end in a way that will bring him the most glory and me the most good. You know, you will look more like Jesus when it's over than you did before it began. Of that we can be sure. Already we see how powerful Paul's process of rejoicing instead of worrying is. And this is just step one. Now as we complete the first step, we might find that leaving the future with God is not so easy. Worrisome thoughts, you know, have a way of coming back to haunt us. Especially at night when we're alone with our thoughts. And they keep us up at night. They ruin our joy. Yes, I, I tried leaving it with God, but then the thoughts just come back. Well, Paul anticipates this in his second step. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, what is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Order the future and leave it with God is not the end of it. You now have to train your mind to think of things that fit the list of verse 8. This is an important step that's often missed. You see, worrying about the future is nothing short of speculation. No one knows what will happen tomorrow, much less even in the distant future. We think we know because we're so close to the situation. Oh, listen, I know everyone involved in this situation. I know how they think. I know they'll react this way or that way once I do this or say that. Well, no matter how much you think you know, you don't know what God knows. God can change their minds in an instant and very well may. He can remove some of the situation so that they're no longer a problem. Or he can save, some of, save them all and put them on the same page with you. There are, in fact, a myriad of ways God could work this situation out that you cannot possibly know or anticipate. And there is far more you don't know than you do know. Even now, here in this place. 
The ceiling could fall down in five minutes. A car could come crashing through the side street wall of this building. Someone could burst in with guns blazing, as has been the sad experience of many churches all over the country of late. We're not omniscient like God. That's another reason, by the way, why worry is such a sin. We put ourselves on equal plane with God by claiming to know the future. We become self-proclaimed prophets. Well, getting back to speculating, you know that the future does not belong to you, nor do you have the authority to create it. It's bad enough that you might pretend to know it, but now you want to steal it from God. There's sure to be no joy in a believer's life who's engaged in this useless activity, beloved. This is worry. No wonder Christians are so miserable in trials. They, they've no proper theology of trials. Worrying over what may be, could be, or might be is to operate on speculation, which will lead you into all kinds of trouble and more chaos in your life and squelch your joy. Speculating has you always looking over your shoulder, always trying to manipulate people and events to prevent what you think might happen. Now, this is no way to live, and it is a grand lack of trust in God. Okay, so how do I get the speculative thoughts out of my head and, and keep them out? Well, you need to apply the principle of replacing speculative thoughts with good ones. Paul actually develops this principle fully in Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 22 and 23. He tells us to put off the sinful habits of our old, unconverted lifestyle and put on in their place godly habits of our new, converted lifestyle. It's such a great principle, and it's far superior to the best that the world has to offer. I'm talking about the New Year's resolution. This being the first Sunday of 2024, you know that millions of Americans last week made New Year's resolutions. It's their resolve to, to quit whatever bad habits or vices they're involved in. But the New Year resolution ultimately fails because it focuses simply on stopping a bad habit. That's it. The superior biblical dynamic calls not for just stopping, but replacing. The Bible never tells us just to stop an ungodly habit. It tells us to replace it with one that is godly, put off sinful habits of your old unconverted life and put on in their place habits of the converted life. Now in Philippians 4.8, Paul applies this dynamic for change to our thought life. Put off speculative thoughts, refuse to dwell on them, and instead, instead dwell on things that fit the list of Philippians 4.8. Write down as comprehensive a list as you can and refer to it the next time you're flooded with anxious thoughts about the matter that you left with God. Keep it with you at all times, even on your nightstand next to your bed, until you have mastered this. You have to control your thought life by constantly reminding yourself of those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. You can see then that the world's way of change is broken and offers no hope. Even if someone were to get the bright idea of replacing his vice with something else, he risks simply making the replacement a new bad habit. 
Telly Savalas was a Greek-American actor who tried to quit his chain-smoking habit by substituting his cigarettes with lollipops. He figured as long as the pop was in his mouth, he wouldn't be smoking. Lollipop eventually became part of the persona of his character that he was most well-known for, Kojak, from the 1970s crime drama of the same name. But Savala simply swapped one vice for another. Well, lollipops are a vice? Well, not really, but they're bad for you just the same. In this case, it was the lesser of two, le two evils. Rotten teeth was far better than cancer. In the end, it didn't work. A biography of Savalas notes, quote, the lollipops had apparently given him three cavities and were part of an unsuccessful effort by Savalas to curb his smoking, end quote. The biblical paradigm is to put off worrisome thoughts and to put on in their place godly thoughts which fit the list of verse 8 that are true and noble and right and good and praiseworthy. We're not strangers to the rationale behind this practice in the area of the mind. Have you ever looked at a photo album? Well, those of you old enough to remember hardcover albums with the real pictures arranged on each page with a protected sheet of cellophane, you remember those? An amazing transformation took place, didn't it? I remember looking through pictures. It catapulted me back in time. I became so engrossed in the bygone era that you... I temporarily forgot what was taking place around me. And in the same way, Paul says, replace worrisome and speculative thoughts with godly thoughts. This is the biblical way of combating unprofitable thinking. Oh, it's work, but it works. But biblical joy, the kind that passes the understanding of the unbelieving mind, is not fully experienced until you complete the process with the third step. And that's in verse 9. Paul says, whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What are these things? Well, Paul's referring to the ministry, his application of his doctrine that he modeled to them when he was with them. And if we're going to replace, or if we're going to rejoice, rather, instead of worry during a trying situation, we need to take the focus off ourselves and put it where it belongs, onto others. You know that when we worry, we become so preoccupied with ourselves, don't we? Morbidly self-absorbed. We need to get our focus off ourselves and onto others. And the more you minister to others in this context, the less time... You have to think about yourself. And, and notice, we are to practice this. This is not a one-time thing. Oh, I did it on Monday. It doesn't seem to be working. No, it, it means to apply this process until the part, that part of the future becomes a present reality and is now over. And when we do, Paul's promise is that the peace of Christ will guard your hearts and your minds. Perhaps one last way that will lead to a fuller rejoicing of our faith, and that is to enrich your understanding of the character of God, beloved. You, have, you need to have a good understanding of how God relates to the world and especially to his own worshipers. You need to know his word. 
What we're saying here is that our expression of joy depends both on our knowledge of God and our application of his ways, which brings us full circle back to Psalm 37. But I single this out because like worry, a lack of doctrine in the lives of believers in churches today is epidemic. Epidemic. You may remember if you were with us during the introduction of the fruit of the Spirit that I argue that this fruit comes at conversion when the Holy Spirit indwells us. So this fruit that is a joy, a joyful disposition came at conversion. Once the Holy Spirit regenerated us, gave us the ability to know God personally, to see God for who he really is and ourselves in comparison, to understand God's matchless grace and mercy, that he is the good sovereign and in control of all things, along with many other truths, such as how much of a sinner and an enemy of God we were before he saved us. When the Holy Spirit imparts to us a new nature that leads to conversion, he immediately, we immediately see these great truths of the gospel and we repent. And even that repentance is laced with a joy unspeakable for salvation in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, quote, Though repentance be a deep sorrow for sin that God requires as necessary to salvation, yet the very nature of it necessarily implies delight. Repentance of sin is a sorrow arising from the sight of God's excellency and mercy. But the apprehension of excellency or mercy must necessarily and unavoidably beget pleasure in the mind of the beholder. Tis impossible that anyone should see anything that appears to him excellent and not behold it with pleasure. And it is impossible to be affected with the mercy and love of God and his willingness to be merciful to us and love us and not be affected with pleasure at the thoughts of it. But this is the very affection that begets true repentance. How much soever of a paradox it may seem, it is true that repentance is a sweet sorrow so that the more of this sorrow the more pleasure, end quote. He's right. The knowledge of the Savior himself ignites this deep-seated, eternal, controllable posture of joy that is part of a new nature. As believers, then, it makes sense that the more we understand our great God, the more of his inherent joy we foster. Spurgeon said as much in his treatment of Nehemiah 8, verse 10. He titled it, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength, right out of the verse, where, where he speaks about how rejoicing in God makes us strong against temptation. This is what he said, quote, Furthermore, the man who possesses the joy of the Lord finds his strength in another respect, that it fortifies him against temptation. What is there that he can be tempted with? He is already rich who shall ensnare him with the wages of unrighteousness, he's already satisfied. Who is he that can seduce him with, the, with pleasing baits? End quote. Spurgeon goes on in his sermon to speak of how rejoicing in the Christian life 
is equally strong against persecution and how it enhances our service and our worship. The fruit of the Spirit, beloved, that is joy, is a disposition, enduring, controllable, thrives in suffering, and it is our responsibility. If you don't know it, you need to be born again. Knowing Christ savingly, intimately, is to know and express his joy. If you do know it, well then nurture it in the knowledge and application of God's word, for it is your strength and your confidence. Our Father, we thank you for this time together, that we have your word preserved for us, that we might read it and know it and understand it. We pray the Holy Spirit's help and assistance now as we leave this place, that he will uh, help us apply this very important principle of joy that it might be evident in our lives so that we might make the faith attractive and that we might be a blessing and encouragement to those in the body of Christ. Oh, Father, help us to know more your joy in these end days that we might be more useful for you, for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.